Welcome to Emerge Everywhere. I'm Jennifer Tesher, journalist turned financial health champion. As founder and CEO of the Financial Health Network, I've spent my career breaking down silos by engaging with innovators across industries. And now I'm sharing those conversations with you. Meet the forward-thinking leaders challenging the status quo and unleashing creative new ways of improving financial health by seeing their customers, employees, and communities in 3D. My guest today, Yelena McWilliams, brings a unique understanding of financial fragility to her role as the chairman of the FDIC. She's an immigrant who arrived in this country alone with only $500 in her pocket. She watched as her family back in the former Yugoslavia lost everything. She knows what it's like to be denied credit. Her story is one of resilience that instilled in her a capacity for empathy and a willingness to lead with compassion at a time when we need it more than ever. Among the financial regulators, the FDIC has been at the forefront of financial inclusion efforts for well over a decade, and Chairman McWilliams is equally committed. Chairman McWilliams, Yelena, welcome to Emerge Everywhere. Thank you so much. I often find that the most empathic leaders are the ones who have had a personal experience that affects the way they see the world. And that certainly seems to be the case with you. Your family lived through the Civil War in what was then Yugoslavia, and they lost everything uh, as a result, from what I understand. Tell me more about your experiences, your family's experiences, and how that impacts how you lead. Sure, sure. And it's a it's a good question, and um, you know, as as people are currently going through the pandemic and wars, um, I don't want to take away from anybody's experience. My family ends up being fine in the end, and I, I have been able subsequently to help my parents out. But back in the early '90s, um, as you mentioned, Yugoslavia was going through a pretty brutal civil war, and I left Yugoslavia in 1991 as an exchange student, and my parents borrowed money to send me to the United States because I firmly believed that my destiny was here, that if I can make it anywhere, you know, I should try in the United States. And, and I, w- I just had this, I would say, um, um, I felt a strong calling to be in the United States and try my luck in this country. And uh, so my parents borrowed money to send me to the United States on an exchange, uh, high school exchange student program as a senior in high school. And so they borrowed, I want to say, close to $5,000. They paid the exchange program. Uh, they paid, uh, are you ready for this, Pan Am, $2,000 uh, for the round-trip ticket. And, uh, you know, whatever was left over, we bought a couple of Samsonite suitcases. And uh, $500 was left. Uh, and with that, they put me on the plane. They didn't want me to leave, but I, I again, just had this urge. And so I I landed in the United States, uh, in, in central rural California, in 1991 in July, on my 18th birthday. And then, lo and behold, the Civil War had already begun in the former Yugoslavia. But it wasn't really, um, it was kind of a, a regionally sporadic and ad hoc, there were some some uh, events here and there, but not a full, you know, full scale war. And then by the time I was in the United States for about two months, there was a full blown war uh, in Bosnia and Croatia. So I kind of observed that from the United States and, and my parents were back there. 
And uh, as you can imagine, with wars come economic uh, issues when the industry collapses, banking system collapsed, and the, the very meager savings my father had uh, in the bank, and I want to say it was no more than probably between a thousand and two thousand dollars in today's money. Um, but you know, something that he worked very hard to save, uh, uh, the system collapsed, and he waited all night in front of a bank to get his money out. And by the time his turn came in the morning and the bank opened up, there was no money left at the bank. And so he went to work as a day laborer at the age of 68 for what was an equivalent of, of today, $5 a day. So he would, you know, you would, you would see this old man by all means at 68, you know, he, he wasn't exactly a young lad waiting for a bus uh, at a bus station for an hour, two hours, because the buses were um, uh, overcrowded uh, with a lack of fuel and maintenance during the war. And then taking the bus, if he could, or walking uh, for two hours to the construction site, working 10 hours for $5 a day, and then walking back home. Mm. And so when you think about um, that, and, and when you think about, you know, would, would that 1000 or $1,500 that he had in savings have helped him back then, it probably would have. And, and so when I took this job as the um, FDIC chairman, you know, I couldn't help but have that image of my dad waiting in front of a bank all night in a three-piece suit because that's how you're supposed to go to a bank to present yourself well. And then having his turn come to the teller window and money not being left in the bank. And there was no deposit insurance at the time in the former Yugoslavia. And, uh, you know, as a, as a consequence of that, combined with the civil war and the collapse of the economy, him working as a day laborer. So that, I would say, affected me and shaped my experience um, when I think about uh, what, it, what the system needs, what do people need, and when I talk to people about deposit insurance internationally, you know, I, I even actually brought my dad to the stage at one of the conferences mm. because I wanted to put the face to deposit insurance. Uh, because quite often we, we talk about deposit insurance in amorphous, you know, nebulous terms, like it's something that, oh, you may need it someday. But I wanted them to see the face of that. And that was my father who had that experience. Wow. That's an incredible story. Let's bring it present now. Um, unlike the 2008 financial crisis, the stability of the banking system through the pandemic and the uh, economic downturn appears sound. But still, the pandemic has taken a huge toll on the financial health of Americans, which in turn challenges the financial health of the banks that they do business with. Tell us what you're seeing in terms of the fallout. And Given that you at the FDIC um, supervises uh, many small, uh, rurally located banks, uh, do you think that the pandemic uniquely threatens those institutions? Those are great questions, Jen. And so I will say this, um, and you mentioned it, that unlike 2008, this is not a crisis that began in the financial sector. It is a crisis that banks are trying to help their customers navigate as a result of the pandemic that then led to uh, local economies and business closures. And so as we look at that, we look at the health of banks going into the crisis. And uh, fortunately, they were well capitalized. There was a lot of liquidity in the system and the underwriting standards were safe and sound, strong underwriting standards overall for large banks and small banks. So that gave us uh, a cushion going into this crisis uh, because frankly, how quickly the business closures came upon us I don't know how the banks would have fared if they didn't have such good standing going into the crisis. 
And so the biggest challenge I had for banks is that we do not know when and how this will end. You know, when are we going to have the vaccine? When can the uh, economy go back to uh, being operational? Uh, wh- when are we going to increase the number of um, of employ- employed individuals who lost their jobs during the pandemic? Sectors like tourism and hospitality have been especially hard hit, and our staff is closely monitoring uh, banks' concentrations to those areas that uh, we believe have had early hits and will take some time to recover. And with respect to community banks in particular, they do have unique challenges, um, especially with weathering this storm, and especially if it goes on for much longer. They were very well positioned going to the crisis, as did the large banks. Uh, but the economies of scale simply don't work uh, to their advantage. And in some cases, they may have heavy portfolio concentrations to some of the industries that have been hit the hardest. So we're looking at all of that and making sure that we can work with those community banks that um, are experiencing hardship to make sure that they can sustain themselves through the crisis, uh, especially if they have had good capital and liquidity levels going into the crisis and they have a good management team. And so we have been, um, I would say, more flexible than not with our approach to how we are regulating banks, recognizing that nothing could have prepared us for the suddenness of the business closures and the related impact on the banks. Um, But I I would be remiss if I didn't mention that community banks also have unique advantages because they have personal relationships with their clients. They know their clients' uh, strengths and weaknesses. And they can at times mobilize more quickly than their larger peers. And we have certainly seen that in March and April when um, I personally made calls to some of the banks and I said, you know, are you talking to your customers? Are you modifying these loans? They said, done. We already did that. And so what they needed from us uh, was basically um, an opportunity to weather the storm um, and, and have an appropriate regulatory response, which is what we have tried to do in the last few months. Oh, that's great to hear. Let's let's talk a little bit big a little bit bigger picture now. I'd like to explore the idea of financial health and what you see as the role of banks in helping their customers, their employees, their communities improve their financial health. Do you do you see it as a responsibility uh, or a regulatory requirement? Do you see it as a smart business strategy? Um, and what would you like to see banks doing to support the financial health of their customers? So I would say all of the above, and here's why. Um, I think quite often we talk about uh, financial sector as kind of fragmented. You know, there's the consumer, there there are businesses, there are small banks, big banks, non-banks. In the end, it's an ecosystem and everything is connected. Better your customers do, more likely you are to do well. And so it is important that we recognize uh, these uh, uh, unique circumstances that are before us and not on an ad hoc basis, thinking, you know, it's, it's just affecting banks or it's just affecting somebody in Minnesota or Georgia. Frankly, everything is connected. And so as we look at um, financial inclusion and how far has have banks gone to help their customers modify loans, reach out to their customers, we basically have seen that most of the bankers, I would say community bankers in particular, are keenly aware that if their communities don't do well, neither will they. And if the businesses on Main Street America start closing down, that small community bank in that town is unlikely to survive. 
unless it has a very, very diversified portfolio, and a lot of these banks do not necessarily. So the the, the issues you mentioned on uh, financial health of the communities, I would say it is a responsibility, it is a regulatory requirement, namely through the Community Reinvestment Act. Uh, but also a smart business strategy. If, if those businesses can maintain uh, their presence in the community, so can the bank. And so as we look at all of this, um, I can't help but think about the need for technological innovation, uh, especially for banks that are looking to uh, reach new customers and also attain and retain existing customers. And so two areas that have stood out most uh, with respect to technology is the ability of individuals to receive economic impact payments via, via direct deposits. Mm-hmm. Uh, and some of the customers who didn't have accounts ended up being delayed. And in some cases, a cost of getting the cash from a check cashing place ended up being more than they would have um, had to pay if they had a checking account. Mm-hmm. And then also in the area of small dollar lending, um, those products, uh, before we issued our joint guidance with the other regulatory agencies, um, they, they were seldomly available uh, through banks. And um, I, would, I would like to say that we were prescient and we knew the crisis was coming, but <laughs> this effort really started almost two years ago when you know I, I basically reached out to OCC and, and the Fed and I said, we have got to do something in the small dollar space for consumers because right now we have three different sets of guidance documents and bulletins and the CFPB has its own thing going on in the small dollar area. And as a result of so much fragmentation in our approaches, banks are reluctant to issue this. So we were able to come up with a joint guidance Luckily, unfortunately, before the crisis uh, really developed fully so that banks can develop this product and offer them to customers, you know, we're talking about $400, $500, $600 loans. And we have seen some of the large banks in the last few days actually announce that they're going to be offering such products. So I would say that that's, uh, th- those are all areas we're looking at and making sure that banks and bankers understand how important it is that they are accessible to their communities and also serving those communities at full capacity. Right. You're, you're exactly right on the small dollar credit front. Um, just uh, earlier this week, Bank of America announced that they're going to be rolling out a new product at the end of the year um, that uh, by uh, everything we have seen looks like it's going to be a very good product for, uh, for customers. And I think it's uh, terrific to see one of the largest banks in the country get back into a business that they all sort of walked away from, uh, particularly once credit card lending got up and running. I think it's going to make a, a big difference. But the first point you made was really about payments, ultimately. Do you see a scenario in which, given the experience that uh, people had in getting their stimulus payments, particularly if they didn't have a bank account, uh, that, that there's a need here for the federal government to... Uh, provide some kind of um, account of last resort, if you will, uh, when payments need to be made? Uh, Or do you think that we just need to be doubling down and getting banks to uh, really reach out and help open accounts for those who don't have one? Um, I would say that in particular, with respect to the payment accounts uh, and, and checking accounts for consumers, Consumers who do not have an account uh, with a bank currently or do not have uh, an account with a one of the fintechs uh, that are in the banking space, but not necessarily banks per se, um, it, the reason that they are not banked uh, would be that they are probably either uh, disenfranchised and not feeling a part of the banking system 
or they have had a bad experience mm-hmm. with a bank and decided that they're better off, uh, you know, outside of the, of the banking system and being in a cash economy, which in the end ends up being by far more expensive. I always say, and, and I have this discussions with my daughter quite often, uh, given my humble beginning in the United States with $500, it is expensive to be poor in America because mm-hmm. everything is going to cost you more and you do not have the power as a consumer uh, if, you, if, you're not, if you're not fully banked because there's no credit history. You know, you're not going to be inundated with good credit card offers. And most of the places that you go to avail yourself of, um, of, of cash and um, other banking products are going to look at you with some form of suspicion because, you know, they have to comply with Bank Secrecy Act. They have to comply with anti-money laundering efforts. They have to, uh, you know, know their customers. And mm-hmm. so there's a lot of things that, there are a lot of things that are built into your existence as a customer and a consumer that if you're not a part of the banking system, kind of makes you a little bit on the fringe. And so what we would like to see is more people being brought inside the banking system, being a part of the banking system, frankly, in the long run, it's going to work out better for them. And in the long run, it's also going to work out better for banks because they're all struggling to attract new customers. And Mm -hmm. so there are two primary ways in which they can do that. One is they can attract the currently unbanked or formerly banked customers who are no longer a part of the Mm -hmm. banking system, or they can try to take those customers away from other banks. And that, that second option is more expensive. So if they can offer good products and bring people into the fold, maybe just maybe that customer that comes in for a $400 loan, unsecured loan, then realizes the benefit of having a checking account. And if the bank treats them well, they will certainly explore other options. And all of a sudden, before you know it, you have a banked consumer. Mm. So we've been talking about the role of banks as it relates to financial health. But if I changed the question and I asked you about the role of banks in promoting racial equity, how would your answer be different, if at all? And what would you like to see banks doing to help close the racial wealth gap? Again, great question and a difficult question, frankly. I don't know that my answer would be any different. And here's why. Um, I I, I hope we come to a place uh, in the United States where we do not have to talk about racial equity and equality anymore because it is just a given and nobody feels like they are not a part of the system. And uh, I I gave a speech a few weeks ago at the University of Chicago Law School where I talked about building a system, a banking system of inclusion and belonging. And I used my personal story um, where, you know, I mentioned the $500. And when I first came to the United States, um, I opened up a checking account And then I realized everybody's using a credit card in the United States. And so I wanted to look like everybody else. So I applied for a credit card. And uh, lo and behold, I was denied. No income, no job, no asset. Perfect ninja, not in a good way. Uh, And nobody would give me a credit card. But there was a bank that offered me a secured card. So of my $500, I sent $300 in. I ended up getting a secured credit card. And after 12 uh, on-time monthly payments, they released my deposit and, uh, and security, and I was given a, an unsecured credit card. And you know what? My limit was $500. Mm. And I thought I won the lottery. I was like, I got $500 on credit card. <laughs> um, and, and certainly with you know, the, the, you know, a car breaking down or, or at the end of the month trying to buy groceries, uh, when I had so little money, uh, it helped uh, hugely uh, move me forward. 
I, I handled that credit responsibly. That's how I was taught by my father. He never believed in credit. We never had a credit card in Serbia, in Yugoslavia. Mm-hmm. And so I, but I did take it very, very, very seriously and very responsibly. And later on, because I built good credit history, I was able to qualify for an auto loan. And I remember it was that when my daughter was born, I decided uh, to, when I was pregnant, to buy a brand new car, my first brand new car, mm-hmm. car in my life, because I wanted a safe vehicle that wouldn't break down when I bring my baby from the hospital. And you know what? Being able to qualify for a favorable car loan meant the world to an expecting mother. Mm-hmm. Uh, then you know came the, the student loans and the house purchase, and and all of those things were financed, uh, and I was able to leverage what I had to basically come on top of things and become a bank consumer. That um, that now has banks vying for my business, right? So now I I I look at the credit card office. And I'm like, well, what are you going to do for me? <laughs> and so you want, you, you absolutely you want customers to consumers to come to the point of being um, becoming sophisticated, being able to use the system to their advantage, and in the long run, uh, that involves making sure that uh, no one feels excluded. Uh, you know, I, I would be remiss if I didn't say it is illegal to discriminate on the basis of race, ethnicity, and other protected categories. And so I would hope that the, you know, unconscious biases that people may have uh, and the bad experiences that people have had over the over the years uh, will be eradicated. Uh, and banks have, you know, banks have a role to play here. And I've seen that many of the banks have offered um, additional commitments to um, help uh, black businesses, black entrepreneurs, uh, black communities. Uh, but the issue is not just, you know, black communities. We have low and moderate income communities uh, of, of many races and ethnic groups that just for decades have not been able to move on up in the society. So we have a lot of work to do and banks being on the forefront of our economy, um, I think need to be good stewards of the economy and do what they can to promote racial equality and to make sure that folks from all walks of life mm-hmm. and of all races and ethnic groups have an opportunity to prosper in this system. Mm-hmm. So you and I have both talked to lots of bankers over the years, and I suspect that uh, much of the time we were often the only woman in those conference rooms. Uh, but two arguments that I hear most frequently from bankers about why they can't be more inclusive are one, it's not profitable, and two, regulation gets in the way. I'm sure you've heard these exact same arguments. You have talked a little bit about why it actually can be profitable or certainly at least less expensive from a customer acquisition perspective. But as it relates to these arguments, what's your rebuttal? Um, Well, first I'll chuckle because um, you're right. Quite often um, I do find myself as being the only uh, woman in the room. And to tell you the truth, I have come to the point that... um, I don't even notice if I'm the only woman uh, in the room and, and people, other people tell me, you know, you were the only woman. Oh, I was. Okay, great. You know what? Because I show them how the, how the business of banking is done and regulating. Um, and so I would say that the two arguments that it is not profitable and regulation gets in the way, I would like to distinguish between those. The not being profitable argument, um, I think it, it, it uh, fails. And here's why. In the long run, in the long run, banks are going to benefit by having more customers inside the banking fold because that customer, just like this young immigrant, you know, 30 years ago, w- will essentially, you know, go from having an unsecured credit card, I mean, I'm sorry, secured credit card to unsecured credit card to a home loan, 
a student loan potentially, a car loan. Maybe they'll ask their children to be a part of that bank, be a customer of that bank as well, as I have done. And so when you look at that, uh, I think if you if you have a you know, short horizon view of um, of being inclusive, yes, it may not be profitable. But the long view should be that absolutely it's going to be profitable in the long run if you treat these customers well and, uh, you know, they're going to refer you to others in their community. And so there is an overall benefit that uh, folks should not be too short-sighted and, and fail to recognize. With respect to the second argument that regulation gets in the way, it is true. Sometimes our regulatory system and the framework we have established uh, does not always follow the ability of banks to serve their communities in creative ways. And so I, I would say this is this is the area where um, some of the alternative data uh, mm-hmm. can be really helpful. If you think about kind of a common and longstanding credit underwriting criteria, a lot of the communities of low and moderate income means they may not have, you know, they may be mistrustful like my father of credit, right? So they may not have your your traditional credit card, or if they have a credit card, they may not utilize it. They may have it just as an emergency, right, if they qualify for one. So there's no credit utilization score. Uh, And and there are many, many instances in which, you know, um, minorities and and people of color and low and moderate income communities have not availed themselves um, of products and services because they were either mistrustful of the system or nobody told them. Believe it or not, no, there are instances when I talk to people and they're like, well, nobody told me about that. Mm. And so, so, and the problem is that if on the regulatory side, we're not willing to think of, of innovation and technology as a great equalizer in our society, we're going to leave these people behind because the bank, the, the, the chief credit officer, the chief lending officer at the bank, the chief risk officer at the bank, is going to say, you know what, the easiest thing I can do and the safest would be to follow the rules to the letter. And those rules, if they're not kind of a creatively positioning banks to be able to avail themselves of the new technology, data, and trends in how consumers bank are going to be in the way of inclusion and um, this, this system I hope we can build of, of belonging. And so I would say that, you know, profitable argument, yes, it's not profitable short term. Yes, it's very profitable long term. And on the regulatory side, you have seen a lot of initiatives from uh, the FDIC in the last uh, year or so and uh, other regulatory agencies as well, where we're trying to think of a technology and innovation as a plus and not as a minus, not as risk, but as an opportunity. Say a little bit more about what the FDIC in particular has been doing on this issue of leveraging technology uh, to uh, maybe ease uh, the regulatory burden and to make sure that uh, banks can use technology effectively and and not have regulatory concerns get in the way. Sure, sure. And um, I would say that um, early on in my tenure at the FDIC, I have... uh, have made an effort to go talk to a number of community banks and talk to a few fintechs that are partnering with the banks and third parties that are partnering with the banks, asking them, how are you creating these partnerships? What are you taking into consideration when you decide who you're going to partner with? And then what obstacles are you encountering in the, in the way of, of those partnerships? And um, the, the two things that I have heard as the primary barrier to innovation, especially for community banks, that have smaller economies of scale than the larger banks is cost and regulatory uncertainty. 
Because the cost to innovate is often prohibitively high for community banks, partnerships with fintech companies are critical uh, in the community bank's ability to offer innovative products and services to customers. Mm. So we started exploring ways in which we can foster these partnerships and create a blueprint and a path that community banks would be comfortable with with respect to the second thing, which is the regulatory uncertainty. If a bank doesn't know how their regulator is going to react to this partnership, and they have all the reasons to believe that we're going to be suspicious because as a regulator, we're, we're risk averse, then they're not going to partner up. So there goes the missed opportunity for the bank not only to have new products and offerings and be more on par with the larger banks that have the resources, but also they lost customers. And the United States lost overall because now the, the folks that we were talking about, the the, the unbanked, the disillusioned with the banking services who once were a part of the banking system but no longer want to be a part of the banking system. And the folks who say, you know, come from different countries where they didn't trust the banking system, they lost it because now they don't have products and offerings that will attract the unbanked and underbanked into the fold. And so from my perspective as the FDIC chairman, I'm cognizant of this uh, partly because of my personal story. And I believe that our regulatory framework must evolve in a way that encourages and enables these partnerships. It's not a it's not a question of if we should. It's a question of how quickly can we um, um, make sure that there is a path for these partnerships. And uh, in this way, we need to modernize our regulatory um, approach. It is imperative for us to do so because the survival of our community banks depends on it. And frankly, the issues of inclusion, inclusion and equity in this system are also going to depend on it. And so we created yeah. an FDI tax initiative, which is our innovation lab at the FDIC. And we have uh, taken several steps to lay this foundation. One is um, we we realized that when uh, these fintechs that have really, really interesting and innovative approach to attracting customers and analyzing credit worthiness uh, of, of a potential consumer, they issue, um, they, they basically engage with a bank and realize that for, for bank A, they got to go through 50 items on the checklist that are basic kind of a questions as you onboard third party. For bank B, they also have to go through the same 50. And so when I was talking to the FinTechs and community banks, it dawned on me that why not, why not create a kind of a, like a good housekeeping seal of approval through some um, certification program. It doesn't have to be done by the FDIC. You know, it can be a public-private partnership. So we have issued a request for information on how best to do that. And we have received a number of, of really, really interesting comments uh, thus far. And I encourage people to send us their comments as well. And the second thing we did to release some of the burden on community banks uh, from regulatory reporting requirements is um, to think anew about how we call, uh, collect call report data every quarter from the bank. You know, we, we collect about 2,600 data points from large banks, for smaller banks, it's slightly over 1,000. And that process is largely automated, but it does require um, a number of human resource hours uh, in, in involved in, in this data collection and verification. And so say for Q1 of any given year, the data is due uh, by the end of April, so a month after the end of the quarter. We will spend about a month analyzing that data and then another month or a couple of weeks to release the data in the aggregate to uh, the public. And so when you really think about it, huge burden on banks, uh, a lot of burden, frankly, on the FDIC uh, staff uh, and, and our analysis. And yet we still don't get the data in anything close to real time. At best, 
the data is only two months outdated. At worst, it could be almost five months out of date. And so I, I, I juxtapose that if you go to a doctor's uh, visit and they do uh, you know, blood work, uh, you don't want to wait four months for your blood results blood test results, you know, if you have diabetes or if you have any ailment and your blood blood test is going to show that, you want the results now so you can fix it. So there's also a problem here that, um, uh, frankly, is, is uh, should be of concern to us uh, on the systemic risk basis. Yeah. And that is that we're going to, if we're looking at the data, we're going to see this trend with a delay. So we have engaged in rapid prototyping uh, and have invited technology companies to help us brainstorm through ways of getting this data more instantaneously with the goal of eliminating call reports in exchange for, um, I would hope, at some point, real-time data, but I'll settle for more instantaneous data than what we get now. Fantastic. I'm so excited hearing about these modernization efforts. So, gosh, so much has changed in the world of banking over the last 20 years. We've talked a lot about technology during our conversation and yet, in some ways, I feel like things haven't changed at all. Banking is, is uh, uh, in many ways, very similar to the way it was 20 years ago and 20 years ago before that and so on. This is clearly an impossible time to make predictions about what lies ahead in the next quarter or the next year. But I wonder if you would think further ahead, like maybe another 20 years ahead, um, and paint a picture of what you would hope the world of banking would look like? Now there's a challenging question. So I would say that 20 years from now, um, I can't even fathom what kind of a technology we will have. I think I will just think about, I need, if there's cash still around, I may think I need $100 and it'll just appear in front of me because some machine simply has read my thought process and, and, <laughs> and uh, you know, dipped into my account and sent me 100 bucks. Uh, and I joke from time to time that uh, I don't know what the world of banking will look like in the future, but I certainly hope that an ATM will dispense cash and a latte and process my uh, dry cleaning, uh, you know, and, and be kind of a, a full service uh, stop. Um, I would say that we need to be careful on the regulatory side that we do not stifle innovation. And we quite often talk about risk in the banking system. And I would like to juxtapose risk in the banking system with the risk in the financial system. Mm. One of the issues we discussed today on this podcast was the, the issue of consumer protection and how are consumers protected. And what has happened since the 2008 crisis, uh, we have shifted um, a lot of risk outside of the banks. And that's a good thing, right? As a regulator, you're like, well, there's less risk at my bank. I can sleep better at night. But what that did as a collateral uh, damage, I would say, to, to, to really good intentions, again, is that we did not reduce the, the risk in the system overall. It just went from banks to some non-banks um, and, and companies that have not previously engaged in, in financial services. And so if you ask me, what does the system of the future look like? Well, I can't paint exactly, you know, what that latte at the ATM will look like <laughs> uh, or how it will be dispensed. I can tell you this, as a regulator, I think about this often and I want to make sure that we can appropriately manage the consumer uh, expectations with respect to technology innovation with the risk in the banking system. I would hope that we wouldn't create 
uh, a regulatory framework that discourages innovation in banks so that innovation is only happening outside of the banks or is so delayed at the banks that banks end up losing customers or not be able to attract customers. And I will say partly because, you know, there is still that consumer protection lawyer lurking inside of me, and I don't think that person will ever go away. I would hope that we create a system where we're adequately able to protect consumers because they are using banks for their banking services and not going outside to areas uh, within the financial services sector that are not regulated as heavily as banks. So on on the one hand, I don't want to disadvantage banks uh, versus other players in the same space um, by putting such onerous restrictions on innovation and entrepreneurship uh, and, and these ideas that can truly change the world of banking as we know it. Uh, and, and I also don't want to disadvantage the customers and consumers of those banks and, and the consumers in general. So I would hope that that banking system 20 years from now is, uh, is, a, is a system of inclusion where innovation prospers, where everybody has access to financial services, and where we're able to, in real time, get access to banking data in uh, consumer data from banks uh, in terms of consumer protection so that we can prevent abuses in real time, we can prevent systemic risk issues in real time, and uh, we have more of a give and take with the banks on a daily basis versus you know, when we examine banks every 12 months or every 18 months, depending on the examination cycle, or when we get the call report data every three or four months and uh, look at, at the health of the banking sector. And so we're on a path and we'll see how far we can get before I, I'm done with my tenure at the FDIC. And I certainly hope that the future chairman will take the reins and continue down this path of, of encouraging innovation and creating uh, a, a framework that will remove barriers to banks to innovate and include more people into the banking fold. That's a great way to end what's been a really fascinating conversation. Uh, Chairman McWilliams, thanks so much for joining me on Emerge Everywhere. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. And thank you for all the work you're doing to inform the public and policymakers on the right path forward to get us there. This has been Emerge Everywhere, a Financial Health Network production. I'm Jennifer Tesher, and I'd love to hear your ideas for future guests and your reactions to the show. You can connect with me on Twitter at Jen Tesher. If you liked this episode, please review the show and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about the work and research we do, please visit emerge.finhealthnetwork.org. See you next time.